Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledygeek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I am Eric Sipple. And I am Arlo Wiley. Uh, and each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this was Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight... Which is a good thing, because there are no more episodes after tonight. This week, we uh, we can't put it off any longer. And believe me, we've tried. <laughs> Regular listeners, you know, we've tried to put this off. Uh, as heartbreaking as it is, uh, it's time to discuss the final two chapters in the long and winding Legend of Korra. Uh, so tonight we're going to talk about chapters 412, Day of the Colossus, and 413, The Last Stand, uh, and there's a lot of stuff to talk about, so no banter. We're going to get right to it. Arlo? For wait, the... wait, wait. We have, I have one brief banter thing, and it's not banter. Okay. I'm, I'm sad. Oh, oh, yeah, no. This is, this is going to be... Well, my wife asked me earlier. She was like, so are you and Eric going to cry on the show tonight? I'm, I'm sad. I actually... I've had a... I, so let me tell you a special today is before we get into this. We have, I've had a bottle of wine that I've had in my cellar for probably a decade. It was one of the only bottles I ever had that I was like, let's see what happens when I like keep a bottle for a long time. I opened it today. This oh, is a, wow. a 2005 bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's like a 12-year-old bottle of wine, um, which I've never done before. And I went down to the basement because I was like, I need to open up something special for this because I'm so excited to be talking about the Cora finale and – Got to say, it's a very different experience. Like, I've never had a bottle that I've, like, held on to for a long time. It's not what I expected. It's delightful. Um, but I am I opened up a special bottle of wine. Wow. For, for Damn. Damn. Anyways. That's that's something. Uh, I, I got to say, so just so the – I know we've said this before, but just so the listeners know, there, there will be one more episode of our podcast after this. Yes. This is the final episode in our, our whole recap thing, but we will have a wrap party next week so um, so if no one cries tonight it's almost guaranteed we'll cry next week yes absolutely um can, can next week be a clip show <laughs> fuck you, um, <laughs> fuck you. i think we should have replaced this one with a clip show <laughs> i think everyone that next week was actually the finale um but i gotta say it wasn't uh, I, I kept thinking to myself um like am i gonna get weirdly emotional about this like I got weirdly emotional when we wrapped um, the Mad Men podcast a couple of years ago, but I, I like haven't really been feeling like I haven't been feeling that way about Cora because you and I mean, don't get me wrong, Joe and Ken are you know an important part of my life, but you and Paul just seem like constant presences. So it, it wasn't like oh, I'm saying goodbye to Paul and Eric forever. Um, but wow, now that we're actually here now this is the penultimate episode the final episode of actual show discussion i'm kind of feeling it like when when you mentioned that you were sad eric like that that kind of like now now i am you've you've completely brought me down you've ruined my night you always do god damn it i'm glad this show's over <laughs> here's my last chance i had to take it here's the thing i Regular listeners of this or and or gobbledygeek know that I am an uh, I'm a hyper emotional person anyways. So I I cry at the drop of a hat. So the fact that I am getting teary <laughs> just talking about are we going to get teary should not surprise anybody. But um, 
I have like Eric, you tend to present yourself as a very like fun loving, like carefree. You like you're always just pumped about stuff. And I've gotten a sense. I don't know if you've intended it, but I really have gotten a sense in our sort of communications over the as we're getting closer and closer to the end that like, there's legitimate emotion coming from you. Yeah. And I, Pam, I, Pam can sense it too, which is why she asked me. She, that's why she said, are you and she knows I'm going to cry. And then she was like, are you and Eric going to cry? And I was like, what has he been saying? Did he say something? And she's like, no, I just get the sense from, from like his tweets about it, that he's really upset. You know, it's, it's, I think what it is, is that this is, so this is one of my, my absolute favorite shows, but we know, especially on rewatch it, it, I think if I did like a 10 favorite shows, it would definitely be in the, the 10 favorite um there's a chance it would make my five um and so it's that and also i've never done one of these like like do every episode of a show podcast things and it's been a year and a half so it's been a year and a half with two of my favorite shows and now it's ending and i don't know the combination of it all definitely has been like um I have never gone through this experience before, so reaching the end, this is the first time. And I, Arlo, that might have been what you were feeling at the end of the Mad Men podcast too. Like, like you live with the show differently doing it every week, oh, than, absolutely, than you yeah. would otherwise. And if it's a show that means a lot to you, you're now way closer to it than you ever would have been just rewatching it. So, uh, yeah, That's... I'm, yeah, very true. <laughs> um, I, I do want to point out something though. Uh, a moment ago when you said I've spent a year and a half with two of my favorite shows, I thought you were going to say two of my favorite people. You should and, know, you and, should and, know better and, than and that. And you didn't, and I just have to process that now, and it's okay. It's all, I'm well, fine. I'm fine. Hey, hey, hey Batar. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not losing you two. I'm still going to get to talk to you about another stuff. We're just never going to get this context back again. We're never going to be the end of, of Avatar and Korra ever again. So it's like the, it's like the Fellowship's ending. Frodo still goes home with Sam, but the Fellowship's over. And that's kind of where we are. Oh, man. I'm old. I'm heading for the Grey Havens. That's right. You're off, man. Time for you to go to the West and diminish. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've been diminishing for years. All right. So. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking about my, my emotions and for letting me drag Arlo down. We can now, we can now get to the <laughs> Okay. On with the show. So um, Arlo, uh, at the risk of uh, stirring up even more emotions, for the last time, you were the noob. So we're going to start with your impressions. And uh, this time, we're talking about it all at once. We don't need to break these down by episodes. This is one big giant finale so uh what were your thoughts on day of the colossus and the last stand first my thoughts on being the noob um because it occurred to me like once like the credits rolled on the legend of Korra finale all of a sudden i was like i'm not the noob anymore oh you're all grown like, up like like yeah like i yeah this is my first time through unlike you guys but now we're like pretty much all on the same footing we've all seen the same stuff there's no more stuff to see <laughs> um i i yeah it almost felt like a like a coming of age ritual like i once i was a noob and now i'm a man <laughs> um if nothing else this show uh made me a man you know, uh, you know, Arlo. We've, I, I keep making batar jokes at you, but I, I want you to know that I, I see you as our Bolin. Aww, that's like the nicest thing you could possibly have said. That might be Bolin. Bolin is like maybe my favorite character on the show. 
<laughs> Maybe. Right. So I can, tell, I can tell the kinship. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I I don't know. I do not know where to start, Paul. To answer your question, what were my impressions? I, there there is so much to talk about. Um, I, I guess the, the the first thing I'll say uh, is because I I know I I texted you immediately after I watched it, Paul. Um, actually, my, your, actually, your very first text, the f- the first text I got from you when you were in the midst of these episodes was something to the effect of, "God damn it, if Mako dies." That's that's true. So let, let's t- let's talk about that. Um, you know, on this show, I pretty famously like have. I don't think I've been a Mako hater so much as a as a Mako like I, I want him to be better. Like, cause, cause there was, I think we can all agree. There was a period of the show where he got pretty sidelined and it didn't seem like they were really doing a lot with him compared to everyone else. But then this season, I really liked how they were were reintegrating him by underscoring how pointless he had become in the context of the group. Um, And when it got, when it gets to the point in the finale where it looks like Mako well, it doesn't look like it. Mako is willing to sacrifice himself to to save everyone, and Bolin has to leave him behind. I was genuinely emotional. That was, I was surprised by the how much feeling that generated in me. That uh, it Bolin's goodbye to him really, really like drives the dagger home too. His like because it's not a goodbye. It's like just get out of just get out as soon as you can. All right. Like, it, he's not letting Mako um, resign himself to what's going on, but also is like can't be super enthusiastic. I, it's it yeah. that kind of killed me too. I mean, that, that... and I love that they have the whole "I love you, I love you too, now go" moment. Like that was yeah. such a wonderful moment of brotherhood, and we do not get that kind of moment very often between two men. Yeah. Uh, in in like any Western fiction, really. Yeah. I mean that whole scene was uh was just designed to rip your heart out and and convince you that he was going to die. The the music cues made it sound like this was going to be one of those final sacrifice moments, the the I love you I love you too, the you know, I just want you to know I do not approve of this or whatever. And then uh, as Bolin is leaving, he gets the last lingering look at his brother charging up his lightning and you're like, "Oh, mm-hmm. dude, this is it, man." This is the last, and, last time he's ever going to see his brother. And I, this is going to sound bad. I kind of wish it had been. I, no, I, I agree. I think, I think it, it would, because it felt like, okay, the, the, the Hiroshi sacrificing himself mm-hmm. um, is it was definitely a super important moment. Mm-hmm. I got, I got a little choked up. You mean Hayao Miyazaki? Yes, Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> <laughs> the, when, the, when the maker of uh, My Neighbor Totoro uh, sacrifices himself. <laughs> I never realized. I never realized that's what his character design looked like. Sorry, um, go ahead. That was that was definitely uh, an important moment, but it was a moment that seemed pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Like when they brought him back at the very end, it was like, oh yeah, he's. He's 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 done his whole re- redemptive like the only way to end this redemption arc is for him to to bite it. Yeah. It really like if you really wanted to to like land a gut punch, 
I think killing Mako or having Mako sacrifice himself would have been the way to do it. And it would have been such a powerful like note to end his character on. Does that I make me a bad person? No, I, I go back and forth on this. And part of it is I was thinking that a member of Team Avatar has never died before. Um, no one died in um, Avatar. None of the main characters died in Avatar. Um, Jet did. <laughs> None of the main characters died in Avatar. Are we even sure Jet died? I was very confused. Uh. Um, um, but so part of me is like I'm I'm not sure what what this show would feel like with a with the very the first main team Avatar death in battle on its hands. Like that's a big weight to carry. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I I, I'm on the fence because, like, the, the the logical writer in me says, yeah, absolutely. Like, it would make the – it would like, Mako dying would have been totally earned and would have been the right thing. But the other part of me is, like, I'm not sure what the emotional character of the finale is with a death like that on it. Yeah. Um. And, and so, for me, him not dying, not because I wouldn't have sort of treasured the emotional damage it would have caused me, but I think about how beautiful everything is that follows that, and it – it couldn't have been that with Mako's death. Yeah, that that is the problem. I I also kind of it felt almost like a cheat that they set up that big uh, sacrifice and then he doesn't actually end up dying. Um, and if any of the main characters dying would have ever been earned, that would have been the moment to do it. But we couldn't have gotten some of the other stuff that I feel like the show earned and deserved. Um, after that, if we were focused instead on like what what would that have done to Bolin? Like Bolin would have been destroyed. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know, one of the reasons that's a fair it works. Yeah, one of the reasons it works, I think, is that Bolin is who pulls him out. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that helps re-earn the saving of him because because Mako doesn't make it out. He tries and fails. Mm-hmm, yeah. So if he had if he had blown it up and then crawled his way out, that might have been cheapening it. But it's Bolin who goes back for his brother and Bolin who saves him from a certain death. And I think for me, that's what makes it what makes it work. That's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Um, All right. Uh, What else? Well, we kind of jumped right into it there with. Yeah, yeah, we did. (laughs) All right. So so what else do we have then? Um, uh, So so I I have have a temperature check for everyone. So we we uh, we we. Last time, spent some time talking about the Colossus itself, whether it fit in, and yeah. you know, we just got our first moment. How? And I'll start with Arlo. Like, how do we feel about the the Colossus now, having seen its its context of how it serves the final battle? Does it does it work? Does it not? How do we feel? I am kind of of two minds on that. So I know last week you had asked me, did I feel like a giant mech was like going too far in terms of like the, the technology we've seen on the show. And I said, it didn't, it it felt natural and it, and it, it, it did. I think it did because we've seen mechs on the show before we've seen those mecha suits before, but I've got to admit, and this may make me unpopular. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about so much of the final battle being against a giant robot. Interesting. Like there are some, there are some great moments. 
I love the teamwork involved in taking it down. The one-on-one fight between Korra and Kuvira is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, Jesus, we'll get there, man. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 get there. But I don't know how I felt about the climax to the the whole series being a fight against a giant robot. Uh, I have a. Def- I want to hear Paul's thoughts. I actually have some 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 Eric's defensive random things thing on this, but I, I want. Paul <laughs> oh, I can't, to I can't wait. Awesome. Uh, so here's my kind of take. Um, I was the one that asked if the last week if the giant mecha felt okay. like a, a you know a bridge too far, a fart too far. Um, <laughs> a uh, fart and, too and, far. And it's because oh, yes, shout out for a podcast no one else has heard. Um, uh, it's because that was my initial reaction to it the first time I ever watched the show. Um, however, in this in these two episodes, um, I feel like I'm completely down with the with the giant mech. Uh, with the Colossus, we'll just call it the Colossus. Um, because of the way it's used, because of the kind of story that's being told with it, but also because I, it's it feels kind of thematically significant that the final showdown, or almost the final showdown, the real final showdown, which we'll discuss, doesn't actually really involve any violence. But the build-up to the final showdown here is all of the little people Team Avatar and all of their friends going and go, going up against this monolithic opponent, which um, it basically stands in for fascism, for the idea, the concept of fascism. Okay. Shit. Yeah that that is <laughs> that is a great argument. I guess the only the only way in which I am still a noob is that this is very much my first time through the show still. And so, you know, maybe if I had, because I think watching something like this for the first time, you have a certain set of expectations that you bring to it. Like, that's why so many people, like, hated the finale of Lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I will admit, and we can talk about this later because I want to hear Eric's Eric's argument about this. Um, But I will admit part of me compared it to Sozin's comet and was like, it, it didn't. I think I actually like Korra better overall, but the finale didn't make me feel the way Sozin's Comet did, which is kind of an unfair thing to to, to ask of it. But anyway, so I, that that was my that was my knee jerk response to it. But that is a great argument, Eric. Go. So I have I have two. This is a, a two points. One actually uh, jumps off of what Paul said, which is there's another thematic way that the Mecha the the Colossus is correct. I think for Korra, which is that it is the, the whole time we've been asking is the avatar relevant in the modern world and this is the avatar against the most horrifying version of the modern world a a super weapon that is totally inhuman it is neither human nor spirit it's it is an embodiment of of like technological overreach um and is the avatar still relevant in that world and so her fighting that is fighting the battle we have been discussing in more thematic terms the entire time the deeper level is that it gives us a battle where Korra is not beating up a human this is not it gives them something to fight that lets us get to an ending that that paul talked about the conclusion not involving violence that unlike versus sozin where the real point was to steal sozin's power from him and beat the crap out of him so he can't continue doing bad things Korra reaches a very different endpoint in Korra and Kuvira's final moments. 
And so I like that what Korra needs to face is something inhuman. Korra needs to take apart something inhuman so she can connect with the human in this, so that she can talk to Kavira, so that she can end up engaging with Kavira. So I, I like it on both of those levels, that it's thematically correct and character correct with what Korra is going through. I stand before both of you uh, completely humbled. Um, <laughs> shit, man. Those, I feel, I feel like a noob. <laughs> right now well this, that is, was, that this was, is your last chance both to be of the those movie. were both of those were beautiful and i'm really upset that that neither of those arguments occurred to me so well now you got to rewatch oh <laughs> yeah now now I, yeah yeah hold on let's put this podcast on pause i'm gonna start it right now okay <laughs> um so so shit yeah so two seconds ago i was like oh, i don't know how i feel about there being a giant robot and now i'm like yeah, it really makes sense, and I can't imagine it another way. <laughs> so, uh, so, anyways, I, I like I, that was my question. I, I think Paul had had a direction he wanted to go with the next conversation, so I apologize, but I wanted to revisit the Colossus talk. So, um, I'm handing back to the actual MC of this show. Well, I was going to. Um, I thought it might be too early for for me and and for us to start geeking out over all the fight stuff, but we've already referenced some of it. And basically these two episodes are, are 80% fight sequences anyways. Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of want to talk about the fights. Our, our, our last chance, my last chance to, to, you know, totally lose my shit over the fight sequences and choreography in this series. So Rather than just point out all the stuff that I thought was amazing, I'm, I want to start by asking Arlo if there were any particular things that stood out for you, like any moments that you were like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Or, Well, in particular, the I mean, I, I mentioned it, but the the one-on-one -on -one fight between Korra and Kuvira inside the Colossus, uh -huh. that was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I, again, as I mentioned repeatedly throughout the course of the show, I am not as well equipped as you guys to discuss these fight scenes in minute detail. In fact, my only note on the fight scene was fuck what a fight. <laughs> um, but I was just completely, uh, I, I, yeah, I was unwrapped. I was, it had my attention the whole time. It was, yeah, that was an incredible fight. Yeah. Um, well, I'll back up a little bit before, or uh, Eric, is there anything that you want to say? No, no, no. I, I'm with you. I think you're going to back up to the Colossus stuff before we get to the Kavira stuff, which which I'm behind too. So yeah, yeah. We'll we'll work our way in towards the the final fight there with Korra and Kavira. But so the big stuff, um, uh, Arlo. I think you mentioned uh, one of the advantages of having the Colossus is you get some cool stuff like watching all of the little people do teamwork to try and bring down this giant thing. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Like we get the the uh, Tenzin's team of X Men or whatever. <laughs> um, coming up with all these creative ways to try to knock this thing down. I loved Milo's plan with the paint balloons. That was brilliant. Um, and, and it would have worked if Kuvira didn't have windshield wipers on, on her giant mech. Um, that was got, awesome. We got to see Bolin do the, the lava bending hot foot thing, which was cool. And combine that with wing and way, like getting the steel cables and wrapping them around its legs. And then We'll talk about the music, or maybe maybe we can mix the music in here because over the course. No, I of want to talk about the music separately because okay. I'm gonna well I'm gonna tangent into one of them. So okay. let's All right. let's well, give each their due. 
put a pin in it because this moment, th this particular fight that I'm talking about when they're doing the hot foot and wrapping the cables around the, the Colossus's legs and Korra does this is on a rooftop nearby and she does this massive like airbending wind blast to knock it down. That's one of the musical moments. There are several cues throughout this and that was one of them where I was like, God damn it, Jeremy Zuckerman, you were amazing. Um, but then there's like the second round, the second time that, that Korra and the, the team go out and try to distract uh, the Colossus when she's just ripping up entire chunks of the street and hurling them like eight or nine city blocks at this Colossus. Um, and uh, what else do we have? Oh, oh, um, I'm so proud of Milo. Did anybody else notice a perfect opportunity for him to fart bend and they had him actually like grow up and use his feet? Yeah, they, I actually was expecting a fart, and I was like, nope, they got their last fart joke out of the way last week, and we all gave them, you all, you all <laughs> gave them shit about it. <laughs> they knew it was their last chance for the fart joke, and they did it then instead of in the battle. In fact, my guess is someone suggested it for that moment, and they were like, no, let's put that joke in the episode before. That's my writer's room. Uh, I like shit. it. I like it. It was, it was. I, 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 I love Milo saving his dad. Yeah. Yeah. That is such a great moment. Milo, we've talked to him as the little fascist in training. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's fighting the actual fascist here. And the fact that he gets that moment out of any of the characters to save Tenzin, that, like, really moved me. Yeah. It's, was... it's, I love that sequence because it's, like, chained people saving each other. Because mm -hmm. it's, like, Janora almost getting caught in the blast. And Tenzin knocking her out of the way and then both spiraling. And then Milo getting Tenzin and, oh, my God, I'm forgetting. Um, Iki. Iki. Iki saving Janora. Like, I love that. It's like they're in that situation. Like, Tenzin needs saved because he knocks Janora out of the way. And then the other two kids have to go in to save them. It's it's great. It's, it's actually indicative of the whole sequence, which I love, which is there's something really special about a well-done sequence of characters going up against an impossible thing to beat. Mm -hmm. Like... And but not giving in. There's there's a really so one of the hardest things to do in writing is to create the invulnerable bad guy, right? Like we see this a lot where there's like a bad guy who's unbeatable that that until plot takes them down, they basically nothing can do, nothing can stop them. Yeah. And it's a very delicate tight wire act to actually make them uh, plausibly undefeatable, so that when things finally work, it feels right. And this is a great example. It doesn't happen very often. And actually, I'm going to compare this favorably to another show that this actually reminds me of that I've talked about before, which is angel and like the beast and angel was another good example of an invulnerable villain that feels legitimately terrifyingly invulnerable. And there's actually a sequence in that where the first time the beast shows up of everyone trying to take the beast down with every single means they can think of and failing. And yeah, that, that was uh, that was when we got John Woo Wesley. Yes, yes, exactly. And like because all the things the heroes are doing are so awesome, when they don't work, it doesn't feel cheap. It's like, oh my god, that didn't work? Wesley could turn into a John Woo character and it still wouldn't take him down? And this is the same thing, you know? Like, everyone's throwing everything they have at it and thinking, they're throwing good ideas, and I like that things work a little bit. Mm -hmm. Nothing doesn't work at all. It slows it down. It it briefly gets the gets in the eyes. It briefly knocks it over, but nothing completely stops it. And anyways, one of my favorite things when it's pulled off correctly, and the sequence is dripping with it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. the The first moment when we see Kuvira look like legitimately concerned about the way the fight is going uh, is when Bolin and the Beifong sisters throw a fucking building at her. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that was that was phenomenal. <laughs> My God, I loved that so much. Um, and and that was like the first and time where she had a reaction like where her face was like, holy shit. <laughs> and because um, the city had already been evacuated, we handily uh, sidestep like a Man of Steel like yes. style chaos and debris situation. Although, although I will, I'll interrupt my, my fight scene love fest here to point out that uh, you already mentioned, we already mentioned that Hayao Miyazaki, that um, uh, Hiroshi Sato comes back uh, because Lin goes and gets him out of the prison. And at a certain point, um, Wu has his sort of hero moment when he goes and gets the badger moles. He's wanted the dance of the badger moles this entire season, and he finally gets it. But he goes to the zoo, the Republic City Zoo, and gets them. So the what we learn from that is, as they were evacuating the city, they abandoned the prisoners in prison, and they left the animals in the zoo. Man. Oh, well, that's, so. <laughs> that's a fair point. That's, that's uh, President... Um... Raiko. Oh, what's his name? Raiko. That's yes, President Raiko. Raiko. Yeah, yeah. He was like, screw That's them, whatever. Doesn't matter. Um, um, so, oh, and so another thing that I love about this fight is what a different Korra. We've Korra has reached a point that she has never been in any finale. This is a determined, confident Korra. Mm-hmm. And what I love is we get two moments. You had mentioned a moment where she makes a big earth gust, or a big air gust to knock it over. She, there's two of them. She does one where it's good, and then there's a second one where she like full on spins into an air gust. Yeah. And it is one of the coolest shots in the thing. And it is a Cor- Cora and every other season finale is desperate. And despite the fact that this thing is unstoppable, Cora never is desperate in this. Yeah. She's like focused. And I don't know. It's, I love what a difference, a different point Cora is in this battle and the tone it gives the overall battle. She's a leader and she's become the avatar finally in, yeah. in full complete mode. Um, another, uh, another airbending moment that, uh, I, I missed in my, no- I thought I had it in my notes. Maybe I just haven't gotten to it yet, but was the, uh, was Tenzin and the other airbenders, uh, creating that down gust, the downdraft or whatever that knocked the spirit gun yeah. off target. That was great. That was phenomenal. Yeah. Really awesome stuff. And, and then mixed in with this is the delightful sight of the, hummingbird mechas yes. flying around it as it yes. tries to knock them down king kong style just lovely and and lovely. you know those <laughs> the hummingbird mechs had the potential to be really stupid really goofy but they are yeah. fantastic like it's such a such a wonderful unique design to those things and then when you actually see them flying um uh, i don't know they're just unlike anything else the show had has done to this point and uh i loved the hell out of them here's here's a thing actually going back to our colossus talk before notice how the colossus is utilitarian and robotic and the hummingbird suits echo the look of spirits oh yeah there's a there's an they organic were... quality to the hummingbird suits that has like it's it's a little boom jew i was gonna right say up. they were inspired <laughs> by boom jew that's awesome um that's awesome yeah that, that had not occurred to me Okay, so uh, what? Oh, all right, so I guess let's get inside now. Well, the do we want to talk more about the hummingbird mechs because there's well, I think I think we we owe Varric and Julie a yes. brief a brief moment of their lots of really wonderful Varric and Julie, uh, Julie moments, but I love the most of him. Like, let's get to that point on my back that I can't scratch. 
Yes. And his reaction to almost getting smacked off is, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I was that flexible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also can't help but notice that uh, at the end of book four, we get another moment of Varric and Julie parachuting to safety, just like at the end of book one. Isn't that how they got away? Like when, yeah. when book two. he broke it. Was that book, book two? Oh, you're right. No, yeah, okay, they, you're right. They weren't right. in book one. They weren't in book one. All right. Has there has there ever been before we get inside? Has there ever been a battle with this clear and directed of a strategy in the Avatar verse? Like it goes from let's buy time for as long as we can for the hummingbird suits to get ready, and then it becomes let's distract it enough so that one of them can cut a hole in. Like it is it is not like let's just try to find a way to overpower the bad guy. There's like this game of chess of strategy between them as they try to get enough buy enough time for something to happen for them to work. I, I, I love the level of strategy in this, but I don't think avatar has ever done anything this complicated strategically before. Yeah. Not certainly I not, think certainly not right, anything yeah. that, uh, that took this long, you know, that, that lasted this long. And it's great that, uh, that the hummingbird mechs didn't like work right away. Like they had to land and start cutting and then they'd get swatted away and they'd have to buzz around and come back. Like they landed like two or three times before they were in a position to actually uh, cut into it. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, Hayo gets swatted and that was sad. So, um, you, okay, so this is great, great like moments in directorial animation. We, when Varric and Julie um, get swatted, we see two things. We see that there's an ejection to them, and we see that there's two switches. Right. Because yes. Julie flips both of them. Right. And I love that because it sets up so that when Hiroshi flips one, we know exactly what's going on even before um, uh, Asami gets launched. Like, with that careful bit of information from that first thing, we already feel what's going on as it's going on. And we even know there's a way to do it because we've already been shown it. It doesn't feel like a cheat because we've already been shown the mechanism. Anyways, it's that's like... Some like careful um, storyboarding went into that, and a plus That's to that. A, for it. The attention to detail that we have come to expect from uh, these creators, man, it's amazing. Great, great. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, they make their they finally make their way inside. The one very minor nitpick I will make now that we're inside the the Colossus, just a a minor nitpick is. Our heroes are now running around inside the arms and legs of this giant hollow robot as it's stomping around the city, smacking buildings. And there's no evidence from the inside. There's no evidence that they are, you know, inside a giant moving robot, <laughs> that they are, yeah. they're in an arm that is being swung around the city or whatever. But the, 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 before, the other thing will be, it's funny, right? It's, it's a spiritual internal dampers. In there okay oh, okay all. you're right um you're right um, before we get there's two two of my favorite shots actually the second fa like two of my like one the one i like a little less is second but there's first of all and i i called this out earlier before we got on i sent a gif of it um oh, yeah. to arlo and paul there's this like as arlo referred to it as like an avengers style shot of the entire yes. team jumping on to the thing uh, onto the mech it's awesome it, and it ends with Korra's face coming right at the screen. Like, they all do a little pose, and then each of them gets up onto the mech in their own way, including Bolin getting grabbed by Lin in a surprise thing because he's the only one who doesn't have a way of getting up there. I mean, um, Mako is literally doing, like, he's in the Iron Man position in that shot <laughs> where he's, like, using his hands as thrusters. 
You're right. Totally. And, and, and this and this this predates that shot too. So, or no, it doesn't. I, for, for, no. I forgot how old the Avengers movie is. Shit. Yeah. Um, but no, how yeah. New that's... This is this is like 2014. I keep forgetting how new this is. Yeah. yeah. Um. But then there's a second great shot which I did not send a gif of, but I love. It actually closes out the episode. So they get up. There's a great sequence of them as they're getting up of Korra slowing the Colossus down with ice yes. to keep its hand from yeah. crushing them. And it like ends in this Indiana Jones sequence of them jumping into the hole in the Mecca and Korra just diving in at the last second. And then the hand pulls away and there's this like uh, cut in zoom on uh, – not really zoom, but it cuts in closer. It's like Korra's in there looking up before the team goes in. And again, it's like that determined Korra. We get these like two – amazing determined chorus shots right before the episode closes and it's it's amazing it's just beautiful so anyway i'm sorry i like these are some of my favorite things i'm gonna like keep tangenting probably and i apologize no no this is very excited (laughs) no i love this stuff i love this stuff so um once we're inside the the team you know splits up and we get uh lynn and sue are gonna work make their way up to the the super weapon in the arm so that they can take out that gun. Uh, Bolin and Mako are going to find the engine room or whatever, the power source, so they can stop the the machine entirely. And of course, Korra is going to make her way up to the cockpit. And um, so the Lin and Sue stuff is cool just because I, I love any opportunity to see those two. I, I love teamwork, period, but I love watching those two sisters who, you know, when we first... When we were first introduced to them, they did not get along, and I, I love seeing them get along in a situation like this. As do I. Plus, plus, it's just great to watch uh, Lynn kick people's ass, <laughs> and uh, and um, now that they're inside. So we didn't even mention the fact that the the exterior of the mech of the Colossus is made of platinum, which is why the metal benders couldn't do anything about this giant robot. Um, but now that they're inside, they can wreak all sorts of havoc, and it's awesome to watch Lin and Sue just start ripping gigantic gears apart and warping everything. It, it's not even delicate. It's no, great. no, there, yeah. Is it Su Yin who's like, it's metal on, it's platinum on the outside, but we can do a lot of damage in here, and then they just start shredding. Yes, so I mean shredding. stuff just they just fold stuff in half. It's great. It's beautiful. Um, but but and Kuvira's like a uh, like uh, like sharp and totally ruthless. As soon as she realizes that arm is gone, yes. she jettisons the whole thing to try to kill them. She she rips the freaking arm off. Yeah, she, of she does and throws it. Which which is another great moment. Of, she like uh... it. Go ahead. And like before that, she like belts Cora. And, I'm sorry, Lynn and Sue inside to make sure they can't get out, and then just tosses the arm no 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 actually that was uh that was lynn that did that so because she she rips off the arm and hurls it and uh uh, lynn seat belts them in oh okay so that they would so they would survive i misread that but uh but yeah that was the great thing i was like that that's again another um attention to detail one of those little detail moments that we really should just take for granted in this series at this point but every time it, it blows me away. Um, and then Mako and Bolin, of course, they get to uh, go create havoc in the in the engine room. And I'm so I was so pumped that uh, Bolin has learned Gazan's little trick of making the lava buzzsaw things. That's, that's so great. Because that oh, was, it was awesome. That's Gazan used to do that, and we've never seen uh, Bolin do anything other than just make lava. So I loved that he did that. 
Uh, and then the two brothers going all old school pro bending uh, on the engineers. It was so good seeing them fight again, like side by side. Yeah, especially Mako, because like 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 Arlo said, Mako's been kind of sidelined for this season, maybe even maybe even last season. Uh, so when he gets in there and he starts like uh, going all pro bending and and like doing the uppercuts with his with his uh, fire bending and that stuff, I was like, fuck yes, this is this is what I wanted to see you guys do. Um. All right. I yeah, there's, there, there's, there. I actually really like um, the. There's a moment in their fight when um, I think Mako finishes first. Mako gets yeah, like through yeah. the guy first, and then he's like ready to pull the lever. He's like, "Be with you in a minute." And before he, what does he do? He he throws the the lava disc at like a pipe to boost steam on him. Yeah, which, steam and, pipe, and then yeah. just runches up and like knees him in the face or punches him or something. Yeah, the slow motion. He like he body checks him in slow motion. It's so great. It's so great. Um, Yeah. Great, great battle. Great battle. All right. You know what? Let's, let's, let's talk about the Korra and Kuvira in the cockpit. Wow. That was a lot of, Uh, a lot of alliteration there. Um, Before we get to the actual details, I love that. Unlike every other avatar fight, a big bad fight we've seen, this is so contained. mm -hmm. There's no scope to this. It's not all over the place. It is a, brawl in a very confined space it's it's a great different setup than we've ever seen for a final battle in fact i would posit that that um is one of the things that helps cora take take kuvira down in this situation because um granted she's she's much closer to being back like in top form than she was the last time they fought but the last time they fought they were out in the the big wide open and there was so much room for kuvira to maneuver and um, like Kuvira knew the landscape. I don't know. I feel like not only is Korra just in a much better place to have this fight anyways, but it's also in a completely different uh, closed in tight space, which I think works to Korra's advantage. In fact, there's a, there's a, a moment when Kuvira gets, uh, gets knocked down, basically like thrown across the room. And she like, she hits the ground and she scrambles. It's a fantastic, another one of those detailed moments of animation where she like scrambles to regain her footing and to, to get back over close to Cora again. Um, just showing that kind of almost panicked, desperate <coughs> physical movement is not something we've ever seen Kuvira do in any of her fights. Yeah. There's, there's a different tenor to this. They're like, Korra is more determined and unwilling to stop, and Kavira is watching her plans fall apart yeah. at this point. So Kavira is actually much more in a mental state where Korra was before, where things are not going her way. Yeah. Um, but despite this, like, very... Actually, no, I'm going to say despite. Because of this confined space, there's a lot of room for really delicate animation around the fighting, my, the favorite of which is... So I love that the liquid metal that we, we saw in Zhao yes. Fu mm-hmm. is here. And there's this great scene where, like, Kavira throws it at Korra, and she blocks it around herself, and it becomes, like, a sphere around her, and then she redirects it in a stream back towards Kavira, and there's, like, this motion of, like, Korra, like, thrusting out her right arm in, like, a very specific way that's just, it's totally different from, like, what I've seen in in the fight style before. It is a really amazing shot. It's beautiful. It's really awesome. that, That is maybe the high point of this fight scene for me. It was, it was... That one stuck out to you, Arlo. That 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 specific thing. Yeah, with the with the liquid metal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think that was the moment where I like 
like my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> Honestly, you guys, I I think this fight between the two of them might be my favorite fight in the Legend of Korra. I, I think it's mine. Yeah. I think it's my my favorite Legend of Korra fight. I mean, it's and not. That, and it's that is not, saying a lot. Yeah, it's it's not the longest fight, and it's it's uh it's probably not even the the technically most proficient fight but just uh emotionally it's the it's the most satisfying like the, it it feels Absolutely. like it feels like everything has been building up to this moment so it's so cathartic um yeah because we we've i mean we've already seen uh kuvira kick cora's ass before cora you know wasn't ready hadn't really come into her own and uh like eric said she becomes the avatar at last in in this episode and just seeing her reach this point of maturation and to have gotten to uh to this level is just so satisfying on a character level and and it results in like a fight scene that is like relentless because like no matter what happens to anyone neither character is giving up every both of these characters don't have i'm gonna lose in their head in a way and you so you get like Moment after, like that, like Kavira scrambling to get up, and like Cora like dodging things and diving in. Cora uses a wrestling move yes. on Kavira at one point. That, she like that wraps freaking... her legs around her armpits and like flips her over. That was oh my gosh! I that is almost so. So Arlo, you said that the like liquid metal redirecting thing was the the moment of the fight for you. The the Cora doing the fucking MMA flip. <laughs> Kuvira is almost my moment of the fight. In fact, it probably would have been my standout moment, moment of this but, fight. If not, is, if not for the move that ended this fight. Oh yeah. Which is the goddamn slow motion yin yang pose <laughs> that they end up in uh, with uh, Korra coming from above, like slow motion air blasting Kuvira who who reaches behind her she's below and reaches behind her and grabs a chunk of metal and throws it up at Korra and they both hit each other at the same time and knock each other in opposite directions holy shit I I'm gonna I will be in my bunk that was a goddamn beautiful moment it it is it's so great and and it is perfect given the emotional resolution of these two characters um discussions at the end like it's the fight mirrors what's actually going on thematically, and that is the best combat. Yeah. Like, you can have all the great technical combat in the world, and I will love you for the great technical combat. Don't get me wrong. But what really makes a fight scene is when a fight scene speaks to character, and damn if that doesn't speak to the character and thematic stuff going on in this fight. Yeah. So, those were all the notes that I had on, like, <laughs> fights. I think I... Think I, I may have spent myself <laughs> talking about that so um but there's one more since you just mentioned the whole um fights with thematic elements or whatever can we can we follow on from that big Cora kuvira battle to where it leads which is the final instance of the avatar state that we get to see in the entire series Yes, although I, well, before oh, yeah. we do that, I want to just a quick moment. We had mentioned this in the context of the emotions, but the beauty of the animation of Mako's electricity bending against yeah. the against the thing to actually blow it up was 
it's easy to not class that as part of the action scene, but it is just as much the way they do the martial arts. Like it even starts pulling in the water bending kind of feels that comes with redirecting mm-hmm. electricity um, that Iroh developed. And it's beautiful. And it's, and one shock doesn't do it. Like he does it and then like regenerates and goes for more. Like it is a, is there is gorgeous studio mirror animation happening in mm-hmm. that sequence. And, um, and he, even though he ends up, he ultimately survives that, um, like it's clear, I think we could probably state pretty clearly that he intended to sacrifice himself. Like he, his goodbye to Bolin, he read it exactly the same way we did. Yeah. Because he no, was, no, no, I, I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was giving it his all, even to the point where like he, he was uh, lightning bending so much energy that he like blew his shirt off and his arm was all scarred and, and burned. Um, yeah. Like he was, he intended to go out in a blaze of glory right there. So yeah, that was an yeah. amazing moment. And, and, and I bring it up partially because also it's a good bridge into what gets us into the stuff that we want to talk about with the actual resolution. But like uh, Mako's electricity bending blows the mech apart. Mm-hmm. And, after that beautiful yin yang moment, the the head of the mech basically blows off, and um, sends them crashing into the spirit vines yeah. um, below. So that the fight ends, and they don't continue on because Mako blows up their battlefield. Right, right, and, and leads to a very different thing than I. So Arlo, Paul, do you mind if I if I get Arlo's temperature? On, yeah, yeah, yeah. On Go. The overall here. So was this? How did you feel about where this final conflict actually went? Like, did it feel like where it was going? What was your impressions as we came out of the fight in the Colossus into this last sequence? Uh, this felt exactly right to me. I mean, especially. I mean, now that uh, you have described it as. Korra having to take apart something that's not human to deal with the human inside, it makes even more sense. But even when I was watching it a few days ago, it you know I I thought that it made absolute sense for especially this season uh, to end on this season, which has been so much about uh, duality, so much about how much Korra sees of herself in Kuvira and how that is both a great and terrible thing, it felt right to end on uh, a, a very small, uh, just, a, we, we, you know, we had the fight inside the suit, and then it comes down to their their words and their emotions. It's, it's, it was, was, it a, was a talking um, more emotional, connective uh, ending what you were expecting out of this, or did, were you expecting a more traditional Avatar punch the shit out of the bad guy ending to this? Um, you know, going into it, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I, I, I can't imagine it ending any other way. I, I think it shows how much, I think we may have mentioned this already, it shows how much Korra has, has grown because, you know, she has a heart-to-heart with the bad guy, and the bad guy surrenders. I, and that is a very Avatar thing to do. Yeah, well, yeah but I'm actually going to hold this up as not only an example of how Korra, the character, has has grown and evolved, but also just the way that uh, Korra, the series... like. like these creators and the world of avatar 
has sort of grown and evolved to where this is the logical conclusion. Um, because, so I, I want to talk about this final avatar state because it's significant in that it's the last time we ever get to see the avatar state. Um, and also in how it differs from pretty much every other time we've ever seen the avatar state. Certainly every time that we've seen the avatar state employed in like a final battle or a season finale. Yeah, because usually when you see, whether it was Aang or Korra, when you see the Avatar going into the Avatar state, you're like, oh yeah, there's about to be some major ass-kicking. That's right. Yeah, it's it's all about like completely overwhelming your opponent. Whereas this time, um, it, it's just fascinating to note that she never even, it doesn't even look like she considers going into the Avatar state. Like when she gets into the cockpit to fight with Kuvira, she probably could have just popped into the Avatar state and taken her out super quick um but it she doesn't use that until um she follows kuvira into the the spirit wilds and uh kuvira turns that uh super weapon on her so the last time that we get to see the avatar state it's not being used as uh, as an overwhelming force like a combat combative uh thing it's used defensively specifically like more importantly it is used to protect the bad guy so yeah. this is this is really interesting to me because i i think it's really interesting to compare the end of Korra uh in this specific point in the end of Korra to the end of avatar and that we see the avatar state one last time with both of them and in both cases we see the avatar state doing something very different than we've usually seen the avatar state with and it actually for me defines it is the definitive moment of what type of avatar each of those characters is going to become. With Aang, the last time we see him go into the avatar state is to energy bend um, Ozai's uh, ability to bend away. Like, he he takes his bending ability. Um, Korra steps in front of the villain and blocks the energy of this super weapon so that she can then talk to her about how they see, she sees them as the same in many ways. And so what that says is we've even seen this with, Ava with Aang in his later adventures – Aang as Avatar is very much sort of like a judge, right? Like, and only in that in a bad way, but he's there to arbitrate situations. Yeah. He's there to go and try to negotiate a situation, and when he can't, to step in and force a solution on the problem. Like, we see this as an adult, too, at the beginning of Korra, when he takes away – what's the what's the, the gangster with bloodbending away? Yakon. 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 Like, that is Aang. Aang as an Avatar is – okay, you are too dangerous. I'm not going to kill you because I'm not that kind of person, but I am going to pass judgment. Korra as Avatar goes back to Wan as a bridge. Korra is the bridge between the human and spirit world. She also becomes a bridge between the humans in conflict in this. Her final version of the Avatar state is to protect the life of someone so that she can become a bridge between what's going on in them. And I think that that's going to be very definitive. That is the type of avatar Korra is going to be, which is different than the type of avatar Aang was. That, that's my read on these two um, final avatar states that we see. I think that's, that's the perfect way of putting it. Yeah, that's a great read. Um, so, so the result of her doing that, of her using the avatar state in that manner, is now we have well first of all now we have instead of just spirit spirit wilds in republic city we have a fucking spirit crater <laughs> but um 
Yeah. But uh, we also have a new spirit portal. So uh, what do uh, you, you think of that? What a, what a visual. Sorry. I, what, what do you think of that? How, how did you feel about the whole spirit portal thing and, and just sort of that bit of the ending, Carlo? That was completely unexpected for me. I, I did. I was not expecting the show to go there. That never occurred to me. Um, but it makes sense that it it does. Like you said, Eric, um, so much of the legend of Korra has been about the Avatar functioning as a bridge between the spirit and human worlds. And we've seen how the spirit the spirits react when humans try to use them for their gain or try to involve them in their affairs. And we've seen Korra trying and failing to bridge that gap. Last week, in fact, um, when she went to the spirits for help, they very understandably told her, "No, this is not this is not our fight. We're we're not going to help you." Um, and I think it makes perfect sense to end with her, perhaps inadvertently, but still creating a spirit portal in Republic City. Um, you know, the 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 capital of the you know, United Nations or whatever we're calling them. Um, the, the capital of the UN. Um, it, it's, yeah, the perfect, the perfect note to end on. It, I love that. I love that the opening of the spirit portal lets Kavira and um, Korra's final conversation actually take place in the spirit world itself, mm-hmm. which is, you know, both serves as like a character thing of disorienting Kavira, you know, like she thinks she's dead at first when when she ends up there but it it puts Korra having a conversation with Kavira in the world that she was exploiting yes to to do and also in half of the avatar well Kavira is now seeing the other half of the avatar um and what the avatar does and anyway I, I love there's a lot of shadings that go around the way that final conversation which is a beautiful conversation actually yeah uh takes place there I, I also like that it begins with um the the literal mir- mirroring of Korra and Kuvira, like we saw in uh, Beginnings Part 1 and 2 when uh, we were introduced to Juan, and we see you've got Korra floating on the blue side of the screen, and then the mirror image of her floating on the purple side, and then the purple image morphs into Kuvira. I was just, uh, I mean, maybe it's on the nose, but I, I like that we get a callback to the Juan episode and that we get the literal mirroring of these two characters before they have the the conversation about how similar they are. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a really interesting ending and it, and it leads, you know, to something that is very different um, than, than we usually get. We've ever gotten from an avatar series, which is that the, in every other and every other big bad, every single other big bad has been for has basically had the resolution forced on them. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that Korra couldn't have beat the crap out of Kavira if she had refused to surrender at this point. Like it's not like Korra couldn't have trashed her at that point. But we have a villain who a, an antagonist, I should say, because this is actually different than a villain. We have an antagonist who, at that moment, looks into what's going on and makes a decision. And has a choice in the fate that happens after that, and I think that's very interesting because we've never gotten that before. Yeah, every other every other uh, antagonist has been either beaten into unconsciousness or driven to murder suicide. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the antagonist wasn't driven to murder suicide; he was the target. Okay, you're suicide. right. The the you're right. You're right. <laughs> Wait, how did how did Unalak wind up? 
he got he got he died but i forget what what led to that like who how did he die she just like blew a hole in in Unavaku, didn't she yeah do yeah oh yeah i mean we don't know what actually happened to to Unalak? no I one mean, cares i mean yeah okay good point <laughs> I like to imagine because he got like blown up like as part of Vatu that he's just existing. He's residing in some hellish purgatory, never to cross to either side, just stuck in limbo forever. Didn't uh, that was the whole Deus ex Genora? Didn't she turn him into dust, or she empowered Korra to do her yeah. uh, her like? Second spirit healing or whatever it was yeah anyways yeah. you know what uh you know what purgatory is for unalak it's it's calling the fearsome foursome phone tree and yeah. not having them accept him into their group yeah just over and over for the rest of his. it always uh, goes straight to voicemail <laughs> <laughs> oh man um okay so uh let's talk about well hang on uh we can I say something about Asami? Please, of course you can say as much as you want to say about Asami. Okay, we're, we're not getting all the way to the, the, the big Asami thing yet, but I just want to say, since we already talked about the scene with her father's uh, redemption and him getting splatted onto the side of uh, the Colossus and all that stuff, um, that was a, it's a beautiful, moving scene. Um, I, I like the fact that, that the reconciliation between her and her father was set up several episodes ago when she like visited him in prison and started like playing Paisha with him again at the time, perhaps Arlo, I don't, I don't know how you felt about it. Uh, I feel like it seemed like it kind of came out of nowhere or it didn't lead anywhere. We had a couple episodes where Asami visited him in prison and was like, well, I guess that's nice, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, now we see that it was leading somewhere. I never felt that way about it. Okay. Um, Well, anyways, so it's, it's nice that it pays off here. My one complaint about this, and this is always going to be my complaint about anything with Asami, is that there's not enough of her. So, I, I completely I, agree. I love that the Asami and Hiroshi storyline. Um, I mean, it obviously they they played their role. They had the the hummingbird mechs and that stuff, so they were important. They weren't sidelined, but I still I can't I just can't help feeling just the tiniest bit cheated out of one last opportunity to see Asami with her badass electric glove actually down there in on the front lines fighting with the rest of team avatar. That's fair. That's fair. I would have loved to see her electric glove someone again. If she could have gotten inside, like if she could have parachuted to safety and gotten inside the mech with everybody else and she could have been in there tearing some people apart, I would have been happy. But anyways, a, a minor nitpick. I mean, Honestly, for as important a character Asami is to the series, I feel like in general, there's just simply not enough of her. I totally agree. Completely agree. Uh, and like I said before, I, I don't understand why she only gets one glove. Like she should have a she should have a fucking Iron Man. The, suit. the, the one glove thing is awesome. I, I know. Love it. I it's, know. Like sti- it's like a style. It's a sort yeah. of like she doesn't need two gloves. That's the thing. The. <laughs> The other equalists were like, I need as many gloves as I can get. If I could put a glove in my face, I'd put a glove in my face. Asami now, one. now I want to see Asami and her one glove go up against uh, the, what, what did, what was his name? The Lieutenant from book one. 
Amon's, oh yeah, Amon's the, the right one, hand. The oh yeah, character they didn't even name. Yeah, with his with his uh his tonfa, his electrified tonfa or whatever he was fighting with. She would yeah. She would bitch slap him. Anyways. <sighs> okay. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about music before we get to anything else. Let's talk about music, shall we? Yeah. So Jeremy Zuckerman um, has been involved with the music on both series since the very beginning. And we were talking about this off mic a little bit in uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender. Uh, he was he and his partner, who I apologize, I can't I can't remember his name. I don't have it in front of me. They were credited as the track team, uh, but it was the two of them. Um, and now I believe in Legend of Korra, he's it's just credited as Jeremy Zuckerman, not the track team. But he's been there since the beginning. Um, and I, we, we have not talked about him enough in either series, but I feel like he's really come into his own in Legend of Korra, and it's unfortunate we have not paid enough attention, enough lip service to Jeremy Zuckerman. So let's uh, let's say some glowing stuff about him because his work, you know, I still say the full orchestral stuff from Sozin's Comet at the end of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, probably the musical highlight of both series, but it's pretty extraordinary here in, in these two. Yeah, it is. Eric linked us to a SoundCloud page, which we should put in the show notes with some excerpts from his score, including like the, the Day of the Colossus, like battle music, and it is just beautiful. It really pains me that there's only one official release of music from either one of the series, and that's the Korra Book One soundtrack. Um, I, I, I want like a, a like a, a super deluxe vinyl edition of music from like the entire Avatar saga. Yeah, I want it all. I want the Sozin's Comet music. I want the goofy music from earlier in the series that, even though it wasn't quite as expertly produced, and I want every single piece of music from Korra, every track. The whole shebang. I want like a four disc Korra set because there's some gorgeous music I'm, in Korra. I'm, I'm genuinely puzzled why this has not happened already. <laughs> I don't understand why. Well, as we're going to talk about later, Nickelodeon is bad. Okay. All right. Um, but yeah, I think this is just a great indication of Nickelodeon is bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, also something we'll talk about later, the, the world of... Uh, the world of Aang has continued in the graphic novels that we've talked about in this podcast series, and the world of Korra is likewise about to continue in graphic novel form. So, this these characters are not going away. The they're still they're maintaining their fan base, and hopefully the fan base is growing. So maybe at some point in the not too distant future, next Sunday AD, um, we'll get an official release of all of the Avatar music. Um, I hope so. But yeah, some particular highlights in this, like uh, because there isn't an official release, I don't know what these these moments of score would be called. But obviously, there's the one that Arlo just mentioned that you sent uh, to us, Eric. The the uh, what was it? Destroy the Colossus. Um, yes. That that was a highlight. All of the music involved when they were taking on the Colossus was fantastic. Um, when Mako was in the in the power core and doing his lightning bending, the, the soaring music there of Mako's sac. Wait, is that also on the thing that you sent? Uh, there is music for Mako's sacrifice in there. Yes. Yeah. Inside slash Mako's sacrifice. Another thing on the, on the uh, SoundCloud link. So that was another moment, but then also the, um, the music that played over the final avatar state that we just talked about, uh, I thought was particularly effective. Um, and 
the final notes of score to the entire thing um, in in the the spirit portal scene that we haven't discussed yet. Um, yeah. Not not that the, I wouldn't the, have been emotional already just because of what that scene was, but the music mm-hmm. certainly helped. The music is really beautiful. It's it's it. I I I really love a composer who can who can hit the soul of a series generally and also give a good mix of like music that pumps you up for the scenes you need to, but also give that but the emotional delicacy that quieter moments need and. Uh, Jeremy Zuckerman seems to me like a real talent in um, composing scores, especially given that I am sure there was not a crap load of money to go around for the chorus soundtrack. I'm just going to guess that in a series where they cut an entire episode and forced them to do a clip show, <laughs> that there was not a crap load of money being tossed at the score. Um, and Which means that this is most likely all synthetic stuff that Jeremy Zuckerman composed and then put through himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and did not have a or like I think Sozin's Comet may have had real instruments, but um, yeah, that, anyways, that, was, that was a live that was a live orchestra they used for that. A, they they gave money to that, but God forbid they give it to Cora. But um, anyway, yeah. Sozin's Comet also got four episodes, and Cora only got two. Yes, yes, <laughs> but, but but it's but gorgeous gorgeous work under what had to not be the best conditions ever, and I don't know why this guy isn't working a lot more. Yeah. Arlo, you pointed out to us uh, off mic that he also did the score for what? The Scream television series? Yes, the the, the Scream show on MTV. <laughs> Which... I, I, I want to note that Marco Beltrami, who is like generic as hell, is mm-hmm. getting to do things like the Scream movies and other movies. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Zuckerman, who produced this gorgeous music from Legend of Korra, is doing the Scream TV series. <laughs> that's, that's my statement on Hollywood right now. Yeah. That's justice. That's it. Correct. <laughs> All right. Way so, to do it. Um, we need to talk about Varric. Oh, Varric. Yes, we do. Ar- Arlo, what uh, what did you think of of Sir Icknick Blackstone Varric of the Southern Water Tribe, Master of the High Seas? Yes. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I, I have loved Varric ever since he appeared back in book two. I know that we're not super hot on book two, but it did have some great stuff. And the introduction of Varric was absolutely one of those things. Um, and I, I love the end that he gets here, you know, <laughs> accepting Julie as an equal. And then he gets a happily ever after moment, which based on where, you know, what, what we learned of Varric when we first met him, I never would have guessed. <laughs> Did not see Varric getting the, the 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 big wedding moment. He gets one of the one of the biggest cheesiest emotional moments of the entire of either show. Honestly, yeah, absolutely. He gets a he gets a proposal scene and a wedding scene mm-hmm. in two episodes. Yep. Yep. Varric of all people, that is uh, indicative of the kind of growth all of these characters have gone through. Yep. And let's just uh, one last time praise. John Michael Higgins's oh, Lord. voice performance. My God, he is—he's incredible. Oh God, he's so good. I, I, I like his line reads that can go from the most absurd to emotional style. I mean, the entire proposal scene, which like he like stop. I have to attach something. To, I don't remember <laughs> what the exact quote is. Please tell me someone of you wrote down the quote. Arlo, I'm sure you did. Oh man, hold on. Oh God, I can't I'm not, believe I'm not, it. I'm not sure now. Uh, I don't think I did. 
Oh, I get really like I have to attach oh, no, something no. to there. No, I I need to attach this ring to your finger. He said something before then. He said something really generic. When he's like, hold on, there's something I need to attach to something. Yeah. And she's like, what? And then he pulls up the ring. It's great. It's like pure Varric nonsense leading into that. It's great stuff. Yeah. And then... Wow, I can't believe someone didn't write that down. I'm I'm actually not disappointed so much as just surprised. I would have I, That really felt like something one, one of you would have written down as a quote. We, we are pieces of shit, Eric. This is your, your final reminder. <laughs> I'm not disappointed. Like, I'm just surprised. I thought after all this time... It was just like I thought I had a rhythm for what quotes you would write down, and I, it's actually me. It's my fault. I assumed something that was incorrect. You know what quote I did write down and completely forgot to call out. So we need to to interrupt the Varric love for just a second and go back to the the Mako and Bolin saying goodbye to each other scene. Was Bolin saying, "This isn't the time to prove how awesome you are. I already know how awesome you are. You're uh-huh. awesome." Yep. <laughs> Oh, all right. So anyways, so the wedding scene, um, <clears throat> I was all prepared. I had actually started writing notes, uh, my, my note on how disappointed I was that it, we didn't get to see enough of sort of the, the older characters or the background players. Um, and that we had this entire wedding scene and the party afterwards that they could have slipped all of these characters into. I had actually started writing that. And then I went and rewatched the episode and, and rewatched the wedding scene. And a lot of the characters that I was singling out for saying, you know, why the hell didn't we get to see this character again? There they were. So in the wedding background, we got to see, um, Cora's parents. Tonrock was, um, easy to spot in the actual wedding ceremony. He was in the audience, the actual wedding ceremony camera pans right past him. Um, And I, so I wrote down, but his mom isn't anywhere to be seen. Well, yes, she is later on in the the very long shot of people sitting at tables. His mom is sitting there or her mom is sitting there. I mean, Um, the radio announcer, Shiro Shinobi was at the wedding. Nice. Mover star ginger of all people. Was that? Yeah. Yep. (laughs) She was at the wedding. Uh, not sitting next to Bolin. Well, Bolin was officiating, but... Uh, How great is it that Bolin was officiating? That's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Um, Especially that he gets a, a list of things to read. Yeah. That, that is horrible and totally varic, and he's like, I'm not reading all this. I'm not going to read all this. <laughs> um, we get to see, apparently, uh, more time has passed than we, than we thought, because we get to see a hyper-toddler Rohan... Uh, running through frame at one point with food smeared all over his face while Pema is chasing him down, which uh, which shows that even though Milo maybe is perhaps growing up and maturing past the need to fart bend anymore, um, now she just has another young son who is going to be a handful. Um, what else? Oh, then the band, the wedding band, Tano from the Wolfbats pro bending team. Uh, was was leading the wedding band, uh, which also featured detectives Lou and Gang from the uh, Republic City Police Force, um, and the the page from the council, um, that the old guy with the glasses or whatever, uh, was also in the band from book one. You had waiters dressed up as Nucktuck. Um, anyways. So That's, I didn't. Re- I, I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch this last scene. I did not realize how much was jammed into the margins. Yeah, of this I, I wedding think scene. I think all of the characters in the band were people, but I don't know who they all were. I, those are just the ones that I recognized. Um, 
However, we don't get to see, all right, so we don't get to see Toph again, but that makes complete sense. We got our farewell yeah. to Toph, and I I wouldn't imagine her being at Varric's wedding anyways. But I'm a little disappointed that we didn't even get a background shot of Katara. It's got to be hard for her to travel at this point. Uh, sure, sure, I suppose. But um, Also, Varric did invade her nation. That's a super good point. But he's from the Southern Water Tribe. Well, I guess he did do the, the he did try to like foment the rebellion, but he also like did a lot of shit that helped it happen too. Yeah, because he's I guess. Idiot. I guess. I just hope but, she's not like. Fair. I hope she hasn't died and they just didn't want to tell us. But anyways, I was I was kind of sad that we didn't even get, not even as much as her sitting at a table in the background. But anyways, and I I will just never forgive. There will never be a rational explanation to me that will satisfy me for why we did not get more old man Sokka. Yeah. I really would have loved to have seen more older Sokka. Yeah. Just inexcusable. There's, there's no reason for, for not getting more of him, but anyways, that was that other than that, the, the best part of that was learning Varric's full name. Yes, that was great. Ick Nick is a great name. I love that. Also, so, did you guys notice that in the in the crowd at the the wedding, Milo is asleep? Oh yeah, yeah, sitting no, in the chair. No, missed that. Yeah, Milo is Milo is like slumped over in his chair, passed out. Yeah. Okay. So, th- so there's a thing that so there's uh, after the wedding, we had a lot of like little vignettes at the end of the wedding of like goodbyes mm-hmm. to certain things. Mm-hmm. The most surprising to me, and even having rewatched it, I forgot how well they lead that into this because we had talked about Wu. And his actually pretty impressive heroism in saving people trying to escape the city. Not just getting the badger moles, but doing an amazing um, thing of, like, putting himself in between the mechas and the people and then calling the badger moles out to knock them down. But it all leads to a moment that I really am impressed by, which is him stepping down to turn the Earth Kingdom into a democracy. Mm Mm-hmm. Woo, woo finally ends the Earth Monarchy, which has been the bane of the Avatar versus existence woo, for centuries. Woo steps down. So one last example of Woo down. The ultimate Woo down. <laughs> woo down. Oh, God, how did I not think of that? I'm so glad you did. You were the right one to do that. Um, what did you, were, were you, was everyone else excited? I was like, I was super stoked. Not just because of for Woo, but the, the Earth Kingdom was terrible. Yeah, I think both series have given us ample opportunities to recognize that the monarchy is not working out for the Earth Kingdom. What, what do you th- What do you think, um, uh, Bolin and Mako's grandmother think, though? How How, how crushed was she going to be? Well, there there was that whole scene with the badger moles when uh, when Wu was singing specifically to her and saying how she was the best uh, evacuee or whatever. Yeah, so she's happy then. I then I think she's down. I she's probably still head over heels in love. She'll, she'll maybe maybe they'll get married. Maybe Wu will become Mako and Bolin's grandfather. All right, that's gross. I, I, yeah, just let that sink in for a second. Just let that. Yeah, sink in. that's really disturbing. <laughs> but that was my favorite little surprising thing was that they actually. It was because, you know, we talked before about the Earth Kingdom being, you know, a uh, listener during the Avatar side of um, things, um, but had to drop off because he hasn't watched Korra yet. Nick had called out like one of the things his biggest issues with the second season of Avatar was that the Earth Kingdom gets a weird pass. Despite the fact that the Dai Li is treated as terrible, 
the whole show sort of never really addresses the fact that the Earth Kingdom is is pretty terrible mm-hmm. on a lot of levels. And I'm I I call it partially because I'm, I can't wait for whenever his kids are old enough and he watches this because I think that this will make him happy that the final two seasons are about the Earth Kingdom being terrible and the Earth Kingdom finally breaks out of it. I, I mean, it would have been it seems like such a little throwaway thing to have have Wu um, do that at the end. But, you know, if you stop and think about it, in the heat of the moment, in the passion of watching this episode, it might not have occurred to me if they just hadn't even mentioned what was going to happen with the Earth Kingdom. But in hindsight, since the entire conflict was built around the fact that the Earth Kingdom was fucking terrible, (laughs) um, that had to be addressed. And even though the series doesn't never has time to go into it in this kind of detail, you know, the Earth Kingdom... Listeners at home, if you have access to the map of the world of Avatar, take a look. The Earth Kingdom is ginormous. It is orders of magnitude larger than any of the other nations uh, in the world of Avatar. And you just have to imagine that in order to run a nation that size from a central government, from a monarchy, there's a certain level of dictatorship. There's a certain a certain degree of fascism probably that is required in order to maintain control over that much territory. Right. So it makes perfect sense for Wu to say you know, I mean Wu could just be doing it because he's lazy and he wants to pursue his singing career like he said, but it makes sense that for that much territory it, it's it's much more logical for them to be divided into states and to govern themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways. Cheers to you, Wu. Wu down. Wu, Wu down for life. <laughs> Wu down. <laughs> oh, Wu, man. Wu, Wu, down, Wu down for what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. That was wonderful. Arlo, that might be, that makes this whole podcast worth it. <laughs> Glad that I finally pulled my weight, you guys. Um, all right. So, we're at the end. We need to talk about the the various farewells that certain characters get. Yes, we have. There's so many characters that obviously not every one of them gets like an on camera goodbye moment. I, I'm sad. I mean, Bolin's goodbye moment, I suppose, was officiating the wedding. So, I mean, we got a, we got a good moment of Bolin, but there wasn't a team avatar comes together and everybody, you know, group hugs or whatever. We got a farewell to Mako between Mako and, and Korra. Um, Arlo. I guess now is the time when we can admit to the audience that you, at some point during over the course of this podcast, you managed to become spoiled for a certain element of the ending of this series. I did. I feel like pretty close to the beginning of our journey through Korra, it might have been partway through book one, it might it might have been during book two, I found out that Korra and Asami were a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, did, and I, did I like you, the idea. Did you know that it was official, or did you just think that it was one of the the shipper things that we've talked about? No, I, I knew that it was official. Oh, okay, all right. Um, so, so Paul, you, you and I have different feelings on spoilers. Yeah. I am. I like to like avoid spoilers, but I do agree with you that if a story is good enough, the the spoilers don't matter. Right. Um, but weirdly, since I do have that belief, knowing that Korra and Asami wound up together kind of worked against me in a way I wasn't expecting. 
because I knew they were a thing, I kept waiting for it to happen. And so the fact that it doesn't happen until like wordlessly in literally the final scene, I, I was surprised by that. Whereas if I hadn't known, I would have been like, yeah, hell yeah. Like that's, that's, that is the moment to end on. That's a, a perfect way to, to make that official. Whereas knowing it, I, I just, I kept expecting there to be more. Um, I love the fact that they wind up together. It makes perfect sense. Um, I, I, like I said, I wish there had been more Asami in general, but I love that the show ends with, uh, the two of them taking a vacation together in the spirit world. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy that they were together and I can only imagine the reasons why it, it's confined to just like, sort of like one chast look i'm i'm sure nickelodeon and a handhold and a handhold in a handhold yes. that's true but you're I'm yes sure. there yeah. there is a reason we can name it yeah nickelodeon didn't want any lesbians in their kid show yeah remember <laughs> i said nickelodeon is awful earlier that's one of the let's call that back nickelodeon you suck go ahead so <laughs> so brian Kanitsko on his tumblr um this is dated december 22nd 2014 which is three days after the uh the air date of the of this episode uh, of the finale i mean uh he posted on his uh tumblr account korasami is canon uh, and the first sentence of his thing says you can celebrate it embrace it accept it get over it or whatever you feel you need to do but there is no denying it that is the official story. Uh, he did that because um, there was sort of fan debate over what the end of Korra actually implied. Um, yeah. And so on the one hand, like, I don't think he ever explicitly states because he, you know, Brian's not going to badmouth Nickelodeon or anything in any uh, official statement. So I don't think he ever states that Nickelodeon told them don't have them kiss or whatever. But certainly we can assume that um, they probably had to fight even to get the level of ambiguity that they had on screen. Um, I, I did a lot of reading when this happened, and I'm pretty sure I came across an article that gave uh, a little more information as to like that we that the handhold was a was hard fought territory mm -hmm. is what I remember reading that getting as far as they did was difficult and. Um, all I ask of Brian Konitsko now and like Michael DiMartino mm -hmm. yeah. is that um, they go, they give us what, what they could not give us in the upcoming Korra comics since we know that they're writing them. So yeah, the, the, it's canon. Let's give them, let's give them all the relationship treatment that um, Aang and Katara got in the uh, Chain books that we've been reading. That's yeah. all I want give us that but it's 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 still really beautiful honestly like and not really that last moment so much as Korra and Asami's final conversation before they go yeah. I really found that that conversation like moving and and sweet I was I got a little teared up during their final talk yes. just 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 on the merits of it like not that anything massive happens just them connecting so it's it's amazing to think back over the course of the four seasons of this series, um, the development of the relationship between those two characters, because as we've discussed many times in book one, Asami, um, they've said Asami was originally intended, like they, they first 
broke the character with the idea that she was going to be the femme fatale. She was going to be um, a, a quote-unquote bad guy or whatever. Um, and they fell in love with the character and changed the arc they were going to take her on. But even as far back as then, the the chemistry that she had, that uh, that uh, Seychelle Gabrielle, the, the voice actress for Asami, had with... Uh, Oh my God! Help me out. Why am I? Why can't I think of her name? Cora's what, voice. Cor- oh my gosh! Now, now you've got me. C- Cora's um, voice. Um, uh, Varney, Janet Varney. Janet Varney. Janet Varney. God, oh God, I should know that because I listened to her podcast, The JV Club. <laughs> Anyways, she has a podcast. I didn't know that. She does. Well, I'll we'll t- I'll talk about it next week because it's a fantastic podcast. It's it's her talking like every every episode is her talking with other. Uh, female either creators or actors or whatever so that's awesome it's a, it's a great podcast so anyways the, even from the beginning the chemistry that those two had was fantastic and it is gradually built over the course of the series and even though as, as we've said ad nauseum asami does not have enough screen time for our tastes um, there are a handful of moments where um, Korra and asami just get to be in a scene together and have a conversation and there's so much so much chemistry and so much development that happens just in those you know handful of conversations that we get to see them have um that it a hundred percent validates where this story goes like it completely earns uh the relationship that they have at the end yeah, yeah. i agree i totally agree plus it's probably the best well, I don't know. Maybe this will be one of our party games next week. I was going to say it's probably the best couple name that we get out of the Avatar universe, Korasami. Korasami. Yeah. I mean, it, it is it is literally just both of their names together. <laughs> but it's but it sounds so great. It, it is. Does, no, it does. Just, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. But yes, I agree. It is. It is. It's an easy one to get away with. But yes. All right. So my last talking point. If if you guys don't have anything else that you want to discuss, my last. Uh, question was going to be so where do we go from here because where does the story go from here uh yeah yeah where where i want to know if we can make any predictions so we already know that the story is going to continue we're getting graphic novel series uh official tie-in graphic novels for this uh that pick up right where this story leaves off so it's only a matter of time before we actually find out where the story goes, but what predictions can we make based on where we are right now? Well, given how the avatar comics have certainly not shied away from the socio-political aspect of, of that show, I would assume that at least part of the Korra comics would have to be about um, one, uh, overcome like the the earth kingdom having to overcome like the grip of fascism and two like you know dismantling the monarchy and coming up with a replacement government a new system of governance so i don't know like what the actual plot of it would be but i think you have to deal with those aspects of it on that note, you know what I would love to see the comics address, and I, I doubt we'll get there, but I would be very interested in it. The um, Fire Nation is now the no long is the last um, completely undemocratic institution in the Avatar. That's true. It's the last hereditary monarchy. 
bouncing around out there. To be fair, we don't we don't get an awful lot of information. Like we do. We don't know what happens between where we left off in the comics with Smoke and Shadow um, and where we are now. We haven't seen enough of the Fire Nation in Legend of Korra to know exactly what their status is. True, true but they're, but the Fire Lord is still um, Zuko's daughter. Right. So there is still at least a hereditary aspect. And they go out and do state business. So it's not like a, a vestigial monarchy like the British monarchy. Yeah. In that, and I, I guess actually maybe the Northern Water Tribe. I'm actually not. I don't. I'm not entirely clear on what they're up to. Yeah, the Water Tribe government is a little hard to to parse. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't know how that works. But really, like the Fire Nation, is still has the very institution that led to the last war, even though the good people are in charge of it right now. So I would love to see what is what goes on in the Fire Nation when the other last big monarchy falls. Like what what does Fire Lord Azumi think about that? What's going on in the Fire Nation? I I hope we just get to see more of Fire Lord Azumi. <laughs> so do yeah. I. For crying out loud, I'm with you there. Um, I, I'm. Are you also? I'm. Are I am a little concerned about the comics for one very petty reason. Okay. Um, because it has a very, um, very small sounding title of Turf Wars. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you guys. Um. There's not an awful lot of information about it out yet, but do you want me to read? Should we read the very brief description? Next week. Next week. Okay. Let's read it next week. Okay. Let's All do right. it next week. Um, but yeah, I. But yeah, I'm honestly though. What all I really want is keep Korra and Asami together and give me lots of their relationship. I will accept literally yeah. any plot if we get to explore their relationship because we haven't gotten enough time of that. Yeah. Okay. I completely agree. Awesome. Uh, oh, you, there's so there's one other thing that's interesting. Hold on, but we, where do we go from here? I'm, I'm, I want to see this. There, there's an awesome little moment where Tenzin says that Raiko is not going to rebuild downtown. Right. He is going to build outwards. So Republic City is now going to have a massive human unpopulated spirit crater with a portal <laughs> in the middle of its city. I want to see Republic City after some of that rebuilding happens. I want to know what Republic City is like in yeah. the aftermath. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, that was, I mean, they don't really show us on a map where it happens, but it looked like that was pretty much like dead center downtown Republic City where that happened, um, which is right near the dot. Like, like the, the entire infrastructure of the city is going to have to change to make, <laughs> to just leave that vacant crater in the middle and expand outward. So I guess the city is going to have to spread along the coast and out into the bay and I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by fantasy world maps and, and city designs and world building and that kind of stuff. So I can't wait to see how that plays out. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. Is this really the end? Mm. I, I, I think it might be. Oh, Oh my gosh, we're Dude. done. We're never going to get to wa- to have a new Korra episode or an, or an Avatar episode to talk about. We're going to... Brit, that's it. We, we'll definitely, we will definitely do more of this next week. And, and I'll, I'll explain what, what next week is going to be here when we get to the outro. But um, for the sake of this episode, if there are any listeners that are just done with us after this and don't want to listen to our very final episode. Do we want to 
just give kind of our closing thoughts on the entire uh, four seasons of Korra? Um, I am, well, more than just the four seasons of Korra, like the Avatar saga as a whole, I am so thankful to you guys for finally getting me to watch it because it was one of those things that I had always heard so many good things about, but I have no idea when I would have gotten around to it. And I'm super glad that I did because it was even better than I could have imagined. The fact that you see that even though it seems like Nickelodeon was fighting against at least Korra, um, the fact that uh, what was technically a kid show on Nickelodeon could, could do the things that it, that these shows did is just incredible. And now I, I actively want to see more animation like this. I want to dip my toes into anime more. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved both of these series, and though my favorite aspect of each, uh, like of both together, is still Zuko's story. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, I, I think the Legend of Korra is the the better show, and they're, but they're both great. Eric, yeah. what about you? Yeah, go. I mean, I came in with um. A, you know, a slightly more personal love of Korra than Avatar. Um, I love both series dearly, and I wasn't sure what a rewatch would do, especially because I loved Avatar even more my second time through, even though there were areas of weakness that felt more pronounced to me. The second time through, specifically um, the middle of season two, mm-hmm. struck me yeah. as more more weak than I had expected at the time. Um, uh, but coming into Korra, I wasn't sure, and especially because Korra had its own weaknesses My when I watched it the first time, that I wasn't sure what I feel worse about them or better about them. Man, coming back through, the, I, I only love this series more. Um, th- this series speaks to me so deeply and so personally. Korra's journey especially is so wonderful and beautiful and powerful to me, um, and, and it all holds together. Like, everything about Korra's journey... It's easier to hold together when you have one bad guy the entire time. But to form a character arc out of overlapping thematic ideas with different antagonists and to build up to something as as potent as what Kavira says about Korra and about where it leads Korra and the final quiet awakening of the real avatar that Korra can become. I don't know. This is... I made the comparison before and I'm, I'm comfortable continuing to make it, which is that I like, I love Buffy. I angel is the series more personal to me and Cora is the same way. This is the more personal series to me. And I, I love it more now than I did the first time I watched it. I a hundred percent agree with you, Eric. Um, I can't thank you enough for uh, drawing the Buffy and angel and uh, avatar and Cora comparison, because that's dead on. Um, I and and Arlo, I I owe you a debt of gratitude for saying that uh, the Zuko storyline is probably your best overall. But as a series, yeah. you prefer Korra. I think I think at this point, like I've struggled this whole time over which series I prefer, and I, I I've always defaulted and said it's whichever one I most recently watched. <laughs> having <laughs> having done this process with you guys, having the conversations we've had, and analyzing it the way we have, I think Arlo, you. You hit the nail on the head. Um, Avatar was an amazing series. I'm forever in its debt for giving us this world, and I loved all those characters. The Zuko storyline, the arc that that character went on, is the highlight of the entire Avatar world for me. But the series, Legend of Korra, is probably 
my preference as well. God, it pains me to say that. It pains me. <laughs> We're, we may revisit this next week. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I appreciate both of you bringing up the Zuko thing, by the way, because I wouldn't have thought to call that out specifically, but there is not a more painful moment in either series than the end of season two when Zuko turns his back on Iroh. I don't think... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't think yeah. there's any... Honestly, it's hard for me to think of me being more crushed about a character arc in a television show than I was at that moment. It was brutal. All of my hopes yeah. and dreams were smashed on the ground in that moment. And <laughs> I can't even blame Cora for not having that because I can't, I'm having a hard time thinking of another television series that kicked me in the stomach. The way, the specific way that that kicked me in the stomach. But um, So thank you for calling out Zuko because it's easy to forget when talking about the series overall just how amazing that was. But yeah, so thanks for the call out on that. It was his show, after all. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, all right. Well, um, uh, it, it kills me. It kills me, guys. But uh, that's it. That is, the, that is the official end of our episode-by-episode discussions of The Legend of Korra. So I want to take this moment uh, to thank everybody at home for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website, theavatarreturns.com. Links will also be posted on our parent show's site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes to make sure you never miss another exciting episode. While you're there, please do us a favor and rate us or write us a review. That really helps spread the word. If you'd like to contact us, and I, I really would like you to contact us, please send your correspondence, care of Monkey Yahtzee, to tarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always find us on social media, facebook.com slash theavatarreturns or twitter.com slash tarpodcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt1013. Eric is at salon, that's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. As we've said uh, several times, uh, the end of The Legend of Korra does not quite mean the end of us. Not quite, not yet. We have one more episode, so um, barring, <laughs> barring any accidents we're planning next week, we will be reconvening, getting the gang back together one last time uh, to do what we've been referring to as our rap party. Um, not entirely sure what that episode's going to be, but the intention is we're going to get together, have a few beers, uh, share some laughs, maybe cry a little bit and reminisce about our experience with both series. Um, as we've gone through this podcast, um, maybe there'll be some fun party games mixed in there too. I'm not entirely sure yet. We'll see. It's a mystery. So, um, Eric Arlo, thank both of you for doing this with me. This has been a blast. Thank you. Both of you. This really has been wonderful. Thank you guys. So, um, everybody at home, Eric Arlo, both of you, Until next week, please remember, you may now do the thing.
inside It's such a 